I encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, start a new chapter, we're in the midst of Lent, if you see that cross over there by the drum shield, I hope you think about the commitments if you made one uh, for this season, I hope you uh, finished up this week our 15 days of prayer as well, and uh, continue on in prayer and continue on in your commitment through this Lent season. Today we're talking about moving from bondage to freedom in Christ, and it's Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul's the writer, and he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we commit this time of opening the word of God to you, Lord. We come, we know it's sharper than a two-edged sword, that it goes through the marrow and the bone right to our heart. And we pray that you, that we would invite you to speak to us wherever we are in our lives as we sit here today. Maybe some have had just dry experiences in their daily devotions. Maybe they've gone through a very busy or traumatic week. Maybe some are sitting here rejoicing of things that you've done and answers to prayer. But the great thing about the Word of God is you meet us exactly where each and every one of us are. And so, Lord, as we communicate this message today, may not be my words, but yours, and that your Holy Spirit would work through what is said, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul is continuing his basic argument that salvation is not gain by man's merit or works, but solely by God's sovereign grace working through our faith. Paul is further developing in the opening verses of chapter four, this idea of a child becoming an adult. He compared the position and privileges of a child who is an apparent heir of wealth to that of a servant being overseen or overseeing the child as guardian or manager. The figure of a child and servant guardian is a picture of a Jew under the law in the Old Testament. The figure of an adult and son represents freedom from the law and being in Christ in the New Testament. Man under the law and under their conscience before Christ came, and then when Christ came, man after salvation, putting their faith in Christ. At the beginning of chapter 4, Paul talks about life under the law being God's preparation for salvation. And as a result of salvation, one of the benefits we receive is divine sonship, and that we're adopted into God's forever family when we come to trust Christ alone for salvation. And one of the law's purposes, as we stated several times before, is to bring men to the problem of sin and its intended consequences found in disobeying the law right up to the point where Christ comes and he meets the need through salvation. In this time of this writing, Galatians in the Jewish culture, there was a much bigger distinction between being a child an adult than it is in our culture today. 
In the Jewish culture, in a point in time, a boy would move into adulthood with a ceremony known as toga virilis, and the Jewish ceremony of the bar mitzvah around the age of 12. Under this age, a Jewish boy had a male slave known as a guardian, a tutor, a manager who was directed by the boy's father to care for the needs of the son or the daughter, the children in the family. But on the boy's first Sabbath after turning 12 in the Jewish household, the son's father would repeat a prayer and the boy would respond with a prayer. The father would say, Blessed be thou, O God, who hath taken from me the responsibility of this boy. The son would say, O my God and God of my father, on this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes unto thee and declare with sincerity and truth that henceforth I will keep thy commandments and undertake to bear the responsibility of my actions toward thee. In ancient Greek culture, a boy was under the authority of his father until he was 18 years of age. At the time of the festival called Apatoria, the boy would be declared at age 18 an ephibos, which was a type of a cadet where he had special responsibilities toward his family and also toward the city and the state for two years. During the coming of age ceremony, the boy's long hair would be cut and the hair would be offered to the god Apollo. So with that background in mind, to give us some context for the first seven verses of Galatians, let's look at our first point this morning. First of all, the child is guided by the basic principles of the law. The child is guided by the basic principles of the law. The child is treated as a slave until maturity. We touched on that last week in the end of Galatians 3. But Paul kind of amplifies that or explains it a little more here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. The illustration Paul is using here, the Greek word child means infant, minor, one without understanding. The coming of age made sense to the Jews and Gentiles because of the cultural customs that we just mentioned. The Jews and Gentiles knew that as long as the heir was a child, he was under the conditions that did not differ much from being a slave. Paul is saying that before Christ came, there was limited revelation and knowledge and that the law was given during that time to help the Jews know how to live and know how to please a holy God. Though by birthright, the son owned the whole estate. Nevertheless, he was kept in subservience like a slave in that he enjoyed no freedom and could make no decisions for himself. In fact, the heir as a child was under guardians who watched over his person and trustees who protected his estate. The child would eventually be the heir of the father's possessions and that everything that belonged to the father would eventually belong to the son. Theologian William Hendrickson said this, he was an heir in legal right but not heir in fact. He had it all appropriated to him, but he wasn't using those or applying them to his life yet until the appointed time. Second of all, we see the child is under the care of a guardian until maturity. Verse two of Galatians four, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. A child is a person with unlimited potential, but is underdeveloped. 
he and she are learning the basic or elementary things. These are the Old Testament laws as regulators of all life and revealers of sin. But a time comes to leave this behind for something new and for more responsibility. At the age appointed by the father in the Roman culture at the ceremony, the boys would take their toys at a similar ceremony. Girls would take their dolls and offer them in sacrifice to the gods as a symbol of putting childhood behind them. It was to that custom that Paul alludes to in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when he said, I, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Understanding the customs of the day. Then we see thirdly, the child is enslaved to the law. In verse three, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We also were under the law as an unbelieving child and held in bondage to our sin. For the unbeliever, through Abraham's promise, no matter what ethnicity, salvation became available to us and released us from the bondage of sin and the law are fulfilled when the unbeliever accepts Christ as Savior. Unless the child in bondage becomes a spiritual adult through salvation, every child unbeliever is trapped by their limited understanding and living with the elementary things of the world. So what does it mean here in this verse, elementary principles? Well, the Greek word here means now or rank, signifying foundational and rudimentary principles of orderliness. This word was used to talk about putting the alphabet letters in order and being the foundation for learning and writing. What are the elementary principles, though, that Paul is referring to here in Galatians 4? Some scholars say the following, demon spirits who rule this world and its system. Others say stars and pagan systems of astrology. Others say the basic principles of human religion. And that seems to be the best interpretation here because Galatians 4.9 has the same phrase and that phrase is connected to ceremonial rituals of human religion. Colossians 2.8, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. We have to avoid those deceptive things that would creep into our lives to keep us captive. In this verse, Paul is clearly associating the elementary spirits with deceptive human tradition and philosophy. The heart of the Jewish tradition during New Testament times was that rabbinical traditions had superseded and stifled the revealed truth of the Old Testament. In the Gentile world, human philosophy and pagan religions were closely interrelated. Both Jewish and Gentile traditions were based on man-made system of works. They were filled with rules and regulations. If you obeyed them, you could earn acceptance and right standing toward the deity. The idea is that through our obedience to works, we obtain acceptance from a deity. And the same truth is alive and well today. I think it's because it's human nature to figure out that we don't measure up. We need to do something in ourselves to earn or receive that acceptance. See, legalism then is not a step toward maturity. It's a step back into childhood. The law was not God's final revelation. It was but the preparation for the final revelation in Jesus Christ. It's important that a person know his ABCs because they are the foundation for understanding all of the language. 
And how silly would it be if someone went to the Bettendorf Library and they sat down with their alphabets and they just kept singing the alphabet song over and over and over, but not taking advantage of the great literature all around them in that library. He's immature, he's ignorant, and under the law, the Jews were children in bondage, not sons enjoying liberty. How many of us, if we're honest, can look back and see how enslaved we were in our sin? And Hebrews 12 talks about, <clears throat> don't let the besetting sin entangle you, so run the race for Christ. How many of us, if we're honest and we think about our lives, we think about sin that came into our life before we were saved and became a habit, but then after we became a believer in Christ, that sin sometimes continues on. It has a deep root. Sometimes we just get tired of fighting sin, don't we? Sometimes we just want to give up. But let me give you advice. The best thing you could do is work on one sin area at a time in your life. Like someone said, the best way to eat an elephant is at one bite at a time, right? And so don't be overwhelmed, but focus on an area of besetting sin in your life. And not only pray and ask for forgiveness and repent from it, but figure out ways to deal with that sin. That when the triggers come that lead you to that sin, figure out some new things about how to respond to that time when you're tempted and do something different. It takes prayer, going against your feelings, memorizing, quoting scripture, and sometimes even fleeing the situation like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. Before I was a Christian at age 14, I was very angry, I was very rebellious, especially toward my parents. And even after I became a believer at age 14, it took me into my college years to really begin to overcome that area of sin in my life. And you know, when you think that sin is put to bed about 17 years ago, all of a sudden, because of circumstances, that anger came back to bite me as well. So you've got to not just say that one's done and put it away forever, but put your guard up and know that you are, have tendencies toward those areas of besetting sin. Don't let them enslave you. The application here is that Christ followers cannot receive the benefits of redemption by staying obedient to the law alone. Christ followers cannot receive the benefits of redemption by staying obedient to the law of loan. The second main point to consider this morning from Galatians 4 is this. The child matures and receives the rights of an heir of grace. We receive the rights of an heir of grace. This is in contrast to uh, verses one through three, verses four through six, four through seven. Even the godliest Jewish believers before Christ died without seeing the Abrahamic promise fulfilled still had hope. In Hebrews 11:39, and all these, though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Like believers of every generation, until we pass from this life, we're not gonna enjoy fully being a joint heir with Christ until our faith becomes sight. The child is set free from the guardian of the law when Jesus came. The child is set free from the guardian of the law when Jesus came. Look at Galatians 4.4, 4, a pivotal verse in this book. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Fullness of time. That means the completion of time to prepare for the redemption of mankind and God's sovereign plan. And when the purpose and fullness of the law had reached its climax, appointing sin, out, sin to man and the consequences of it and understanding how to live before the Messiah came, God sent forth his son. The timing for God sending his son in the world was right religiously. The Jews had turned from their idol worship after the Babylonian captivity once and for all and were open to looking for a Messiah. The time in history was right culturally. Rome ruled much of Europe, North Africa, and the Mediterranean region. The Roman Empire provided a common language, Koine Greek, uh, and then currency as well, a common uh, culture based on Roman and Greek ideas. And then Greco-Roman civilization had no common major religion to give organized opposition to Christianity. Many of the old Greco-Roman gods and goddesses, uh, the people had lost interest in them. And the rise of many new mystery cults paved the way for people to explore new ideas. And so they began to be open to Christianity. The time was right politically. Rome had built roads, cleared seas of pirates, generally making travel safe for Christian missionaries. You might remember the Pax Romana, peace at any cost, the cruel but effective means of peacekeeping that allows stable environment in which people can focus on learning, practicing, and spreading religion. Each of these factors were key in their unique way to allow for the spread of the gospel, and God had sovereignly engineered human history to bring about these favorable conditions for Jesus the Messiah to come and for the gospel to go to the far reaches of the known world at that time. Now in verse 4, when God sent his son, it was not describing his divine essence, although he was equal with God. He willingly subordinated himself to be obedient to the father of whom he was equal so he could redeem mankind from their sin. Born of woman here in verse 4, speaking not of his virgin birth, but as miraculous and as important as that is, but that he was born like any other human being, born of a mother. It says in Philippians 2.7, in the likeness of man. Jesus had to be human, had to be man, to represent us and to be the substitute for us on the cross. Born under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law. And like the Jews, he had to live to satisfy the law and to keep it fully. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Unlike the Jews, he came and fulfilled perfectly everything that the law required. In Romans chapter 8, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but who walk according to the spirit. And then we see the child receives the inheritance of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses five and six. 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because of Jesus' perfect obedience, he was able to redeem man from his sin. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now we talked many times about the word redeemed. It means to buy out or to buy back, referring to slaves whose freedom was purchased. If a slave's freedom was paid for, not only was he or she released to live their lives, but in many cases were adopted into the family of the slave owner. You and I, we were redeemed by the blood of Christ when we trust in his work on the cross. It says there in verse uh, five, talking about adoption means the giving the status of sonship to someone who is not his natural child. In Rome, it was an honored status to be a redeemed slave. Slave. It gave them special dignity and family membership to those who were not born into the family. That's why I love John 1.12 so much. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, the reasons God sent his son are twofold. First, he came to redeem those under the law. This is not a redemption from the curse of the law, but from the slavery to the entire Mosaic system. The emphasis is not on the penalty of the law, but on its bondage to it. And since Christ redeemed and set free those who were under the law, why should Gentile converts now wish to go back and be placed under it? A second reason God sent his son, it says here, Christ's incarnation and death secured for believers the full rights of sons. All the enjoyments, all the privileges of a mature son and a family belong to those who've entered into the benefits of Christ's redemptive work. We see in verse six how God gives the confirmation for adoption of sons and daughters by giving us the assurance of the Holy Spirit. God gives us his divine nature as a gift to prove we are part of God's forever family. And when we trust Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And that means we become partakers of the divine nature. The Spirit offers a subjective experience that confirms God's objective facts in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. It says, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's our assurance, our security of salvation. Verse 14, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God's desire for us to call him Abba, Father, Daddy, a term of endearment. We can approach God at any time with a question, with a need, with a desire just to sense his love. A pastor, David Scruggs, visited Israel for a period of time, for several months. And he was taken back by the terms of endearment that the kids showed to their father. There was a child who got a really good report card and he ran up to his daddy and said, Abba, 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 trying to get his attention. He witnessed during that time another boy who was out swimming who was struggling and he cried for his dad, Abba, Abba, Abba. 
he had a sense of what was it like a father was looking for his children who'd gotten away in a crowd and this Abba father was looking for his children. These events had a profound impact upon Pastor David and upon his understanding of the fact that we are Abba's children. The child receives all the benefits of being adopted into God's family. Look at verse seven. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What we are, we are sons, we are daughters, we are heirs. Once again, the entire Trinity is involved in our spiritual experience. We see all three aspects of the Trinity involved in salvation. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God the Father sent the Son to die for us, and God the Son sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. In contrast here, it's not between immature children and adult sons, but between the difference of servants and sons. Like the prodigal son, the Galatians want their father to accept them as servants when they were really sons. The contrasts are easy to see. For example, the son has the same nature as the father, but the servant does not. When we trust Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And that means that we are partakers of the divine nature. The law could never give a person God's nature within. All it could do is reveal to the person his desperate need for God's nature. So when the believer goes back into the law, he's denying the very divine nature within and giving the old nature, the flesh, opportunity to go to work. The son has a father while the, master, while the servant has a master. No servant could ever say father to his master. When the sinner trusts Christ, he receives the Holy Spirit within and the Spirit tells him that he is a child of the Father. When the Spirit enters the heart, he says, Abba, Father. And in response, the believer cries, Abba, Father, again in Romans 8.15. The word Abba in Aramaic means Papa. Shows the closeness of the child to the Father. No servant has this. The son obeys out of love while the servant obeys out of fear. The Spirit works in the heart of the believer to quicken and increase his love for God. You remember Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. In Romans 5.5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. The Judaizers told the Galatians that they would become better Christians by submitting to the law, but the law can never produce obedience. Only love can do that. In John 14.15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The son is rich while the servant is poor. We're both sons and daughters and heirs. And since we're adopted, placed as adult children in the family, we may begin drawing on our inheritance right now. God has made available to us, Ephesians says, the riches of his grace. In Philippians 4.19, the riches of his glory. In Romans 2, the riches of his goodness. In Romans 11, the riches of his wisdom. And all the riches of God are found in Christ in Colossians chapter 1. The son has a future while the servant does not. While many kind masters did provide for their slaves in old age, it was not required of them. The father always provides for the son. The father always provides for the son. In one sense, our adoption is not yet final because we are awaiting the return of Christ and the redemption of our bodies. Some scholars think that this second stage in our adoption corresponds to the Roman practice 
when a Roman citizen adopted a child or a slave or someone outside their family to be their son. First, there was a private ceremony where the son was purchased. Then there was a public ceremony which the adoption was declared openly before the officials. We as Christians have experienced the first stage. We've been purchased by Christ and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. But we're awaiting that second stage, the public declaration at the return of Christ when we shall be like him, as it says in 1 John 3. We are sons and heirs, and the best part of our inheritance is yet to come. Our application here is this, that Christ followers are set free to be called the sons and the daughters of God. We're called to be the sons and daughters of God. Story of a man who went out to Las Vegas, played a slot machine, played lots of things, but this particular slot machine, he won. The problem was the machine malfunctioned and didn't let him know that he won. So he went on his way and later on went home and pretty soon the Nevada Gaming Commission began to do a study. They saw somebody had won $230,000 but the machine had malfunctioned and they didn't know it. Well, the man was later identified by officials as Robert Taylor. He played a slot machine at the Treasure Island Hotel and Casino. Well, they began to do an extensive search, an exhaustive search to identify this winner from out of state. They combed through hours of surveillance videos from several casinos, interviewed witnesses, sifted through electronic purchase records, and even analyzed ride-share data provided by the Nevada Transportation Authority. The jackpot winner of $230,000 was determined to be Taylor, a tourist from Arizona. Think about it. He was a winner, and he didn't even know it for a long period of time. You and I, we too are inheritors of a great wealth, the kingdom of God, but we go through life living at times unaware. How would it change the way we live today if we truly understand the vast riches we have at our disposal today, and even more so tomorrow. Here's our key thought. What does it look like in our lives to be set free from the grip of the law and to walk as an heir of the king? Think about it. The difference between being under the tutelage of a servant, being in bondage, but knowing that we can walk in victory because we're heirs of the king. Some questions to ponder this week as we close. How do we limit God's given freedom to our lives? Think about it. How do we limit God's desire to do more in our life? What do we do to limit that? Second of all, what does it mean that we can cry out, Abba, Father? And how are we to act this week as an adopted son and daughter of God and being an heir of all things given to us by God? Ponder those things this week. As you think about Galatians chapter 4, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you that we're joint heirs with Jesus, that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Lord, this week, help us to walk in that privilege, in that freedom, to not limit you obey you out of love and desire to please our Heavenly Father. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.